Hello everyone and welcome once again to this week's podcast, Motos and Friends, brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In this week's episode, we hear about the Honda CRF 300 LS from associate editor Kelly Callan. It's a dual sport bike that is likely to interest entry level or novice riders. However, it's capable enough that it may also appeal to intermediate and even experts who want to have some inexpensive fun. In our snippet this week, I'm going to introduce you to the recently launched Cortec Lite gloves that have really got riders talking. Essentially, Cortec has utilized a new type of material that is both tough yet also super thin, and they make three variations of a riding glove. I'm a big fan of feel and feedback when I'm riding, so I decided to try out a pair of these Cortec lights when on my recent tour around Tuscany with Moto California. Our second segment features my buddy Mark Thriller Miller. Mark's electrifying 20-year professional racing career saw him race and finish on the podium at Macau, 46 starts at the Isle of Man TT, national factory racing during the AMA heyday, and even a stint endurance racing at the Baldor 24 hours. Mark is now a commentator at the Isle of Man event, and his easy style of narrative makes for fascinating listening. <laughs> Actually, it belies his electrifying experiences that include surviving a shockingly fast crash at Ago's Leap, as well as winning a TT riding the fabled Motosis electric race bike. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The CRF 300 LS, and what makes this different and special is that it's the lower version of the standard bike. Um, so it's actually two inches lower, which is absolutely you know, spectacular for um, novice riders. For anybody who's kind of joining this, getting into motorcycle riding, it's a really um, welcoming situation to be able to get both feet flat on the ground. So um, that seat height comes in at 32.7, which still sounds really tall, but it's not as bad as it sounds when you sit on it. Um, it's a very slender bike. It settles down and uh, it's very easy to handle. So as an experienced rider, really used to some of these really sort of true off-road machines, is it is it that much easier getting on one of these sort of shorter dual sport machines? You really like that? It actually is a lot easier. And it's something that, as I said, if you just kind of look at the numbers on, on the spec sheet or something, it, it looks a little, you know, kind of scary if you're not really tall. But if you swing a leg over and sit on it, I think you'd be surprised. Again, the bike is very slender, so that really helps you get your feet down to the ground. Terrific. So just to start at the beginning then, so this is actually a dual sport bike. So it, it is street legal um, with lights. Um, it does not have serious off-road capabilities, but it has some off-road capabilities. Is that correct? Or, or... Yeah, exactly. This is... It's really um, an entry-level bike for somebody who wants to get into dual sport riding. It's kind of more geared toward the street. I mean, it's capable of going off-road. We went off-road, had a real good time on it. Um, but because it does have the suspensions a little lower, um, 
primarily this is to get your feet flat on the ground. It's really targeted for newer riders. And one of the most important things with newer riders is that comfort of being able to get your feet down on the ground. So that's the point of it. If you were going to spend more time off road, you'd probably want the standard version, not this lowered version. Um, so it, yeah, it absolutely does have capability to go off road, um, but nice dirt roads, a fire road, something like that. Okay. So in other words, it sounds like it's a really good kind of urban bike, you know, kind of a, a 300. It's a slightly larger engine. I mean, they do make, make smaller ones in the Honda range. So this is obviously a decent, it's going to have some decent punch to it, I would think. Yeah, actually that 300, um, you know, kind of sounds small, but it's really uh, pretty capable around town. I mean, the target is an urban, kind of urban suburban bike. Um, the dual sport aspect of, of it, of course, makes it, makes it really kind of wonderful riding around town when the roads are not in great shape. You've got lots of travel on, on, the, um, on the bike and the tires are suited for the bad pavement. And it's just also, it, it's an aesthetic thing if you like that look, which I, I really do. I mean, it's one of my favorite types of bikes um, for running around town uh, it could be a campus bike. Uh, again, it's really targeted at at your newer riders, though, and the lower seat height helps. And the dual sport aspect of it gives it that capability. It, it makes it um, versatile. Yeah, I know um, we had the uh, 150 um, a few months ago, and TJ went on the launch of that. So obviously, this is quite a lot more performance. It must be the motor must be pretty peppy, I would think. Well, yeah, and actually, as as you were saying, you know, three hundred—that's actually a decent size. So, mm. um, yeah, it is capable of. It's it's freeway capable, absolutely. That's not where you're really going to want to spend most of your time. But I mean, I I commuted to work on it today. It can keep up with you know, extra legal speeds if you have the option to do that. If the traffic's <laughs> flowing. But that's not really where the, the bike shines. But it the engine, you know, it it is peppy and it does have the power to do that. Right. Well, I guess while we're on the subject of urban capability, does it have ABS on it? It does have ABS. It's standard with the bikes. So you're not having to pay extra for that. Um, okay. You can right. defeat the, the rear wheel ABS if you're going off onto the dirt. Some people like to do that. So that's nice to know. But it's great, especially for this entry-level type of bike that it comes with ABS. That's just a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It sounds like you had a lot of fun on it. Now, um, there's quite a lot of sort of urban fire roads around Los Angeles. I know that you guys like to go riding those. Did you go anywhere interesting and have some fun? Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, when, when we saw what bike, you know, we had to test here, it was like, we know exactly where we're going. Um, <laughs> kind of <laughs> a little bit northeast of downtown in Mount Washington and Cypress Hill has some dirt roads. Um, they're kind of like under the radar, like most people don't really know about them, but they're there and they're very cool. And they go through the hills there. And so we headed down there to take some pictures. And in fact, in one particular spot, we, we got in there and we were gonna take some pictures. Then it was like, it, it, this road, this little dirt road ran behind some houses. And it was like, oh, there's some guy working on his house there. We better, you know, snap a picture and get out of there quick because don't wanna disturb him. And he just kind of like waved and he's like, no problem, you're good. 
And uh, so it was, it was cool. It's like this bike, it's very friendly, it's quiet. So nobody's gonna get out of sorts. And in fact, somebody else came, a couple came walking down, a young couple came walking down the, the road as we were you know, kind of going back and forth and taking pictures. And they, we stopped and talked to them and the guy was telling us, you know, one canyon over, there's another really cool dirt road that I ride my uh, ATV on, or I guess actually it's probably four wheeler. But anyway, it's like he was telling us the cool other places to go in case we didn't know. So it's, um, that's one thing that's nice about this bike. It just has like a friendly vibe to it. And as I said, it's quiet. So you can enjoy these little uh, forays into the, the sort of secret dirt roads around town and have a lot of fun. Now, again, they're smooth, you know, mostly smooth. There, there's, you're not doing anything tough, right? I mean, there's urban dirt roads, but this bike's kind of perfect for that. Is it really hilly? I mean, how, do, how does the, the bike handle, you know, sort of hills and, and downhills and all that? I mean, again, you're an expert level dirt rider. So, you know, I would say you're in a good position to be able to judge the, the performance of that. Well, the bike is really, it's, um, it's a six speed. It's, it's got broad power band. So, and in first gear, especially since it's going to go off road, you know, it's geared very low, which is, this also makes it really easy for an, a beginner rider. You, it's like it pulls away very easily, but because the, the power band is really broad, you could even be in the wrong gear. You could be in third gear and it'll pull. The personality of the engine is very sort of docile, but it's peppy at the same time. Does that make sense? It has the power, but it doesn't jump out. So it's not going to get anybody in trouble. But back to your question about the hills, though, you can just kind of put up or you can go up a little more lively if you want to. The bike pulls and it's no problem we didn't come across any like big obstacles or anything like that but because it does have the bigger front wheel um 21 inch front wheel 18 inch on the back it can roll over some obstacles if it were to come across them it can roll up curbs that's one of the fun things about a dual sport bike if you need to jump up a curb get around something whatever you can do it no problem yeah interesting it's good for a beginner and then as they develop their skills and become a little bit more intermediate, it, they're still, they're not going to be fed up with the bike. It, they can really sort of grow into it. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good way to put it. They can grow into it because, yeah, it's not going to scare, it's not going to scare a beginner. Um, but if you push the bike, it, it responds well. So if you push it, it can be a peppy little bike and you can have a lot of fun. As you said, I've ridden a lot of like pure off-road bikes, dirt bikes. Um, larger engines and so forth. But this bike is just a total blast. Uh, as we've discussed before, sometimes, you know, the smaller bikes can be almost more fun because you don't have to be careful of the power. Right. But it has, you know, the, the bike like this does have power so you can have some good good fun with it. Also, the handling, it, it's um, very light and easy. So this is a good bike like for doing the exploring around town on these dirt roads or, you know, back alleys, whatever. Um, it's easy to handle. It's light. Like sometimes we'll go up into the hills, the paved hills, and it, there are very narrow roads uh, in through neighborhoods and so forth. And you don't even necessarily know where you're going. You're just kind of poking around and exploring and you may come up something steep and need to turn around. Handling the bike's pretty easy. So um, that makes it fun to just ride and not be stressed by anything. 
does that make the suspension a bit too soft on the street? I mean, what's the handling like when you're actually on the street and commuting or, or is it is it pretty good as well? It's it's comfortable. It actually it works really well. As I said, for like a lot of the roads around town are, are not great. Um, so I always enjoy a dual sport suspension around town. Um, it's fine on the freeway at higher speeds on the freeway, the dual sport tread on it. And so it kind of wanders a bit on the freeway grooves. I mean, you know, just there's a little bit of a looseness to it, but it's predictable. I'm not worried about it. It's just, you know, you feel that, but around town though, that suspension is, it's not too soft. It's nicely dialed. I really enjoy it. It makes for a comfortable ride. Yeah. I, I kind of like that. I always liked something that's softly sprung, but well damped and Honda, Honda are pretty good with their suspension nowadays. So, so it sounds as though it, 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 it falls into that sort of category. So overall, it sounds like a really nice entry level bike, but really, you know, intermediates and even experts can appreciate. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, if you, if you, I will just say, like, if you're going to spend like all your time really on the street, then unless you're just going for the, the aesthetics, which I get, um, you might be happier on the CB300R because it's, you know, it's actually an inch shorter. So for somebody, if that's a concern, you know, you, you might just want to go for that bike instead. If you like this look, which I do, I just find a, a dual sport bike in general it makes me feel like I'm a kid when I'm riding it. I don't know why. I really, it's not even like I rode when I was a kid, but, uh, it, but dual sport bikes were kind of like the first bikes I learned to ride on. And there's just something that's so easy riding them. And, uh, and as I said before, and I, I know I'm kind of maybe underscoring it a bit, but these bikes are very friendly looking to other people too. So like if you happen to, and I do this because we get to do this in, in California, I split lanes a lot, you know, people don't get cranky about it. They see it coming through and it just looks like, oh, you know, they give you a wave and they don't get, you know, they don't get annoyed by it. Like sometimes with a sport bike, it's just, you know, like, oh, there goes this, you know, this fast sport bike and somebody's just going through too, too quickly. Um, you don't get that with a bike like this. So, as I said, you know, it's good if you want to kind of sneak your way to the front of the line on, on the street. When the light turns red, you can get up to the front. The bars are a little bit wider because it's a dual sport bike, but it's not really a big deal. And in fact, that just makes controlling the bike easier because you have the leverage. Um, so especially for a beginner, they would like that. The front brake, nice, soft action on the lever. You know, it engages softly, so nobody's going to get scared there. So that's good. Um, the capability of the brakes is is perfectly matched for the bike. But keep in mind, you've got the dual sport tires. So the contact patch on the pavement's not as good. You're not going to stop on a dime on this bike, you know. Um, so but people aren't going to be racing around on this bike in that way either. So it's, it's not like it's a big deal. Well, you know, it is labeled as a dual sport bike, so it's going to have it's going to feel pretty sporty because it's light and flickable and skinny and, and all that good stuff on the street. But, you know, there are some compromises if you do want to be able to take it on on some of these fire roads and have a bit of fun. 
hey, you're going to sacrifice a bit on the street. And that's okay. I think people understand that, like you say. Yeah. And when you're on this, most of the time when you're riding on this bike anyway, you're not in like some big hurry or whatever. It just, the whole vibe of the bike is just kind of this fun, more relaxed ride anyway. Um, so again, it, you know, it'd make a good campus bike, um, just an around town sort of urban bike. The, the one negative, like the only negative thing I can say about it is there's a lot of heat that comes off the header pipe. So your right leg feels that a lot. Um, even with technical writing jeans on. And I was noticing it today. Granted, today was a hot day anyway, but you know, that that is there. So uh, but other than that, the bike is just super fun and capable. So um okay. I just had a blast on it. That sounds great. So it sounds like a hot little bike in more ways than one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and, uh, you know, it sounds really user friendly. I mean, it, it, the classic, you know, you meet the nicest people on a Honda. It sounds exactly like a really fun little machine. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's um, great, great entry to the sport. If, you know, people are beginning riders, it really is a great way to start. Um, it comes in at $56.99. And uh, again, ABS is standard on it. Uh, there's a little tool you could put tools in there's like a little box on the left side of the seat there you know on the side of the bike um so a little tiny storage capability you could strap something on the back of the, on the across the seat pass you know pillion um if you want to so it's it's a handy little bike i think it's a good price and it's just a ton of fun hey thank you so much i really appreciate your time and, and your insight into into uh, the little Honda. Sounds great. Sounds like a fun machine. All right. Thanks, Arthur. It's, it, it really was a fun bike, and I, I'm going to hate giving it back. <laughs> <laughs> In our snippet this week, I'm going to introduce you to the recently launched Cortec Lite gloves that have really got riders talking. Essentially, Cortec has utilized a new type of material that is both tough, yet also super thin and they make three variations of a riding glove. I'm a big fan of feel and feedback when I'm riding, so I decided to try out a pair of these Cortec lights when on my recent tour around Tuscany with Moto California. I understand you were on a touring trip recently in Tuscany and you were impressed by the new type of gloves you were wearing from Cortec. Yeah, Tuscany in September is absolutely astonishing i mean it is it's like heaven roads were amazing super twisty we went uh, with a company called moto california it was really great but uh, but yes i was wearing these new cortec gloves they're actually cortec light gloves so what is so different about them well <laughs> they're ultra lightweight yet they are also armored so they're very protective as well what's different about them is their ability to give the rider ultimate grip feel and feedback so you can actually tell what the what the motorcycle's telling you you've got great feel with them but how is that possible i mean if they're that thin surely the thin material can't be that protective well that would make sense but um but they're actually made from a new material called ax suede connect there are three variations of the cortec glove um, and depending on your needs 
The thinnest have just 0.55 millimeters of this AX suede on the palms. Incidentally, the AX suede is also touchscreen compatible. So again, while touring, if you've got your phone mounted on the handlebars and you need to, to tap your screen for directions or what have you, you can do that without taking the gloves off. And that was very useful too. Yeah, I can just imagine. So is there any other protection? Uh, yep. They also have a flexible TPR knuckle armor as well. And that's a fairly standard thing across the industry. So they've got really hard knuckles and, uh, and so on, which is, does offer you know, decent protection, absolutely. And you said there are three types. Tell me about the three variations available. Um, sure, okay. The thinnest and the lightest are just called the Cortec light gloves. And those are really good summer or you know, fair weather gloves. There is also the, uh, the Cortec Windstop, and that has an extra layer of uh, <laughs> Windstop material that keep your hands slightly warmer. Then the, the thickest ones are actually 0.75 millimeters of this AX Suede Connect palm material, and these are the Cortec Insulite gloves. And those also have a layer of Primer Loft insulation in the glove. So those will just keep your hands really quite a bit warmer if you're riding in, you know, cool evenings or, or what have you. Wow, that's a, a good range. There's the light, the windstop and the insulite. Why were you so impressed by these? I know you were raving about them. What made you think they were so good? Well, I, I mean, it's pretty obvious, really. But, but ride, when you're riding long distances across several days of seriously twisty roads and you're getting pretty busy on the bike, I mean... I was with a couple of fast guys, and so we were we were tramping on. And so for me, it calls for a set of gloves that obviously you've got to have protection. But frankly, what really is top of mind for me is comfort and feel at the controls. So I knew that the weather was going to be pretty hot, and some days were in the 80s, but it also gets cool at night um, in Tuscany. So I needed a glove that gave me great fit and great feel at the controls but that wouldn't bake my hands during the day but likewise wouldn't necessarily freeze my fingers off when I'm riding back to the villa in the evening when the sun had gone down but I think most importantly for me is the ability to feel the bike when we're riding hard I mean you, you need to feel the front end you need to need to know what's going on and I don't want to be distracted by big clumpy gloves that sure they're going to be a lot more protective in a crash but i need something that's going to give me that that feel when i'm riding that comfort so my hands aren't all cramped up at the end of the day so it's interesting how thin and light these feel yet they also offer definitely a, a decent degree of protection cortec has done something really pretty interesting here with the light glove they're actually they're not trying to persuade people um, you know, to give up their highly technical gloves. Of course, those are going to offer, you know, better protection. So for, you know, super sport guys, track day guys, racing guys, Cortec isn't expecting you to, to give those up. Of course not. What they're trying to do is persuade people who don't use gloves at all, or perhaps those who just use some random glove, not motorcycle designed, such as, I don't know, golf gloves or whatever, and they're trying to, to persuade people to at least wear something that gives them protection. And they don't have to give up the, the feel and feedback that the Cortec-like gloves will actually give. 
The other thing is, is these gloves are really inexpensive. There's 35 bucks for the light gloves, $40 for the windstop gloves, and $45 for the insulite gloves. So there's really no excuse not to be wearing, wearing these motorcycle design gloves and make sure that you're both comfortable and protected as well. The other thing that kind of blew me away is these come with a four-year warranty. So I don't think you can say fairer than that. I mean, clearly Cortec are prepared to get behind the product. And yeah, I was really impressed with how good these things are. They were, they were great. They're just a pair of gloves. But yeah, they did everything I needed them to do. I was very happy with them. Our second segment features my buddy Mark Thriller Miller. Mark's electrifying 20-year professional racing career saw him race and finish on the podium at Macau, 46 starts at the Isle of Man TT, national factory racing during the AMA heyday, and even a stint endurance racing at the Baldor 24 hours. Mark is now a commentator at the Isle of Man event, and his easy style of narrative makes for fascinating listening. <laughs> Actually, it belies his electrifying experiences that include surviving a shockingly fast crash at Ago's Leap, as well as winning a TT riding the fabled Motosis electric race bike. I started quite late. My parents would never let me have them. They used, I had used the same things. problem. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Every Christmas, every birthday, I just have a little mini bike, a little mini bike, something, a little motorcycle. And you know, you never know why you're uh, attracted to stuff. You know, since I was the tiniest little boy, I'd, every time I'd see a motorcycle at a campground or something, or, or at a motorcycle dealership, I would, I just couldn't get my eyes off. I had to sit on it and just play on it and pretend I was riding it. And then a little bit later, uh, kept asking for him, never got it. So I graduated from high school at 17 years old, moved out of my mother's house uh, within, I think, two weeks. I mean, I just bolted the second I could. And I bought a motorcycle within uh, about one week after. <laughs> it was a 1980 GS 1100 ES. Might okay. have been an 81. Nice. But it was an air-cooled 1100 right yeah. out of the gate. Never owned a street bike before, and I just had to have the fastest one I could afford, which was about 800 bucks. <laughs> and uh, just, I luckily didn't kill myself on it. I actually thought it was just a roller coaster at will, and uh, it was everything I ever wanted. It was heavy, and I had scraped the side of the engine every time I turned, but it was amazing, and I was hooked for life. So, obviously, that was on the street. Mm -hmm. So then when did you when did you actually get to start racing? You started to think, you know, this is fun going fast. Mm -hmm. Let's see what it's like on a track. I was going to a university in northern Arizona called Embry-Riddle and taking the flight classes there, getting a, a bachelor of science degree in aeronautical science in order to, in, um, to, to be able to go into the Air Force as an officer to try to get jets, fighter jets, because uh, when I graduated from high school, my dad says, Let's, uh, what do you want to do? I said, I want to race, but we don't know anything about racing, so... Um, what's your second choice? And I said, well, I'd like to be an astronaut, a test pilot, and be in the Air Force and be a fighter pilot. And he said, all right, well, look at all the schools. Long story short, I was going to school up where there's some amazing roads in Arizona, going to this flight university in, in, up at a high altitude. And there's a, a road called White Spar, which is 89A that goes from Prescott down to Wickenburg. And we used to ride it every day in anger. I started out with some shitty bikes and 
went up from there and got better and better and eventually got a VFR 750, which was an 86, uh, even though this is, you know, many, many years after that, but it's all I could afford. The, the university gave me a credit card with a $5,000 limit, <laughs> and I went down the very day to Hales Motors in Prescott, Arizona, at a Honda dealership, and bought the only thing I could afford that could turn better than a Suzuki a GS1100, and that was a VFR750 with a 16-inch front wheel and an 18-inch rear wheel, and start terrorizing the, the local canyon roads, and then met a guy from Brazil that went to the school, and he says, hey, why don't you try coming with me to Chandler, Arizona, to Firebird, and try out some club racing. I think you'd be really good at it, because I was basically the fastest kid around. You know, nobody could touch me. I just was a knack, had a knack for it. Went down to Firebird and did the, the school, and I entered, I was allowed to enter the GTO race that day, which I know you're familiar with. It was a little bit of an endurance race. Sure. As an amateur with a yellow plate, and I, I won it first race ever I ever entered. I won it by half a lap. So on my shitty VFR 750 with bias ply tires. So <laughs> the year after that, I financed a ZX-7 at the time, which is probably a 93. And now I had 17-inch wheels with, you know, the ability to do Dunlops uh, 590. What were they, 591s, 590-something? Anyway, quite expensive, but... Um, back then you could just buy takeoffs from faster guys, eventually turned expert, started winning a bunch of those and eventually got, uh, recognized by team Suzuki sport. And they, they, the AMA came to Firebird for an AMA round with Fred Merkel and Duhamel and Mike Smith and all the, the main guys of the day. And I finished 10th in 750 Supersport in my very first AMA pro. And they gave me two Suzukis the next year. Wow. Exhaust systems from Yoshimura, which I upgraded to tie out of my pocket. AirTech uh, Air gave me a bunch of bodywork. And next thing I know, I had two brand new Suzukis show up at my house in the crates. <laughs> and the deal was, would you like to go AMA racing? If you could figure out all the other costs, we'll give you two free motorcycles, 35 grand in free parts. And uh, a, like 150 tires from Dunlop. It was an absolute dream. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Wow. So kind of overnight, I went from a so club racer to... So this must have been like sort of early 90s then. It was 96 when I got the two GSX-R okay. 750s in the mail. Right. 96. Yeah. So I went racing that, and the next thing I know, I'm on the front row of Daytona at, you know, Doug Chandler and Aaron Yates and Pascal Picot. Jason Pridmore on the Kinkos are all behind me. I was on the front row, and I didn't even know what I was doing there. I had, it was like my third year ever. <laughs> the next you know, Rob Muzzy's standing next to me with Doug Chandler and ready to go racing. Wow. Wow. So, but you've got a a long and, dare I say, pretty storied history on real road racing. Um, so, I mean, mainly the Isle of Man, I think, or maybe, maybe only the Isle of Man, you have to correct me there. But, but uh, so what was it sparked that? So I was riding for Graves Yamaha. I was their first ever rider that they started the new exhaust system. It was in 98 or something. And Chuck had the, you know, the new R1 came out. And nobody was going to ride it. So I was like, I went to Chuck and I said, Chuck, you know, they've got this new R1 coming out. It was basically a thousand cc, if you remember, stuffed into a 600 chassis. It was much, much lighter and it was amazing right. at the time. And I said, why don't we go race that thing? He says, well, go talk to Yamaha. So I went and talked to Yamaha and Yamaha didn't really want to do it with Chuck. But eventually I put them t the two together and they uh, collaborated. You know, the next thing you know, they had like a, to this day, had this massive relationship I was the first monkey that got to ride for Chuck Graves when him and his brother started Graves Exhaust Systems. So I did that, and at the end of the year, he says, look, I've been doing Macau Grand Prix for many years, Chuck Graves said right. to me. I'm going to be going this year. Are you interested? 
And I said, well, so I look at some pictures and videos. And my God, it's like lined in Armco. Right. And uh, I couldn't believe that they actually were going to race there. But it was a, a trip to Asia. And I'd never been to Hong Kong. I'd never been to Macau. Or it's like, what the hell is Macau? So I went out there. Uh, and I did it with Chuck. And I got fourth in the very first go in front of a lot of English guys that were doing the TT, actually. Wow. And I just kind of got bit kind of got bit by the bug because I came from the canyons anyway. I was still a street rider to sure. that day, and I'm still to this day. I love riding on the canyons. And we got fourth, and then we got fourth, and then the third year, we went back there with a great um, attack racing, attack Yamaha, on a new R1, and we got third. And that was on the podium at an international, you know, had the American flag over my head, and we, we were standing on the podium with David Jeffries and Michael Rudder. Couldn't believe it. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. i got to ask you, though, what, what is it like the first lap on one of these road circuits? So you, you've never seen, all you've seen is a few pictures of guys taking corners at Macau, surrounded by Armco barriers at high speed. Mm. What is that first lap like? It's terrifying, to be fair. The first time I saw it in, a, in the backseat of a taxi, I was like, we're not gonna race on this, are we? <laughs> it's impossible, like how could you let 38 guys, you know, barrel into the first corner on a mass start? It's not a time trial. Wow. And I just could not believe we were going to... And there was cars parked. There was shuttles everywhere dripping diesel fuel. The roads were filthy with oil. I mean, it's like, how, it, this is stupid. You know, like, it's ridiculous. But we had, thought we'd have a go. And once you kind of, you know, the cars laid down some runner, ru rubber. There was Formula 3000 or Formula 3. And there also the uh, World Touring cars to clean up the track a little bit. And you just... The, the main thing... The greatest answer I could give is it was a realization that up to now, you know, you always, oh, you risk your life, you're taking a lot of risk. Nothing in my life up to that moment had been dangerous until I started racing between Armco, steel Armco walls. You can't crash. Zero runoff. Right. Like, you have to go fast, but you can't make one mistake. And that was so unusual for our sport because we're constantly going to the gravel trap. We're constantly crashing. We're constantly bouncing off of people or outbreaking yourself or whatever and you couldn't do it at Macau and that was the main thing is you had to thread this little needle and go I can go as fast as I possibly can without a single error or I'm dead or paralyzed and uh, wow. that's the main the main thing that that overcame you is just you can't make a mistake are you able to ride it a hundred percent like that or are you you've got to be leaving just a little bit it's about 92 94 depending on if okay. you get a battle but, uh, you know, I was able but, to... to but just your 92% is, you know, my 150%. So, well, I don't know, know about that. Fair enough, but... <laughs> well, we were riding the same bike that we, we were racing all year in AMA, so it was actually quite easy. You know, we, we had the same tires, the same exact R1 or R71, I think, at the time. We had an R7 chassis with an R1 engine in it, so now it handled. And we had this major, massive, amazing engine from Richard Stamboli, and it had, like, bloody 100 and... 89 horsepower at the real wheel or something back then oh. but they're flat slide carburetors when we right. first started doing those right which means they had accelerator pumps and they had this massive torque because it's a thousand cc plus sometimes they're i think they're bigger and if you weren't careful you could smash your your face in the helmet and the um smash your face on the tank because you would accelerate too hard and it would just bam and smash you in the face because it would wheel you so aggressively so you had to kind of almost like drop your elbow down instead of twisting your wrist when you're getting off the corners it was mad it was really fun and actually the most like raw gnarly racing i'd ever done and even to this day because now everything's a bit easier to ride to be fair right 
right? Yeah, of course, no electronics, no, none of that. It's all all controlled at your right wrist, mm. you know, and 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 you're you're breaking. Did you feel that you had any kind of weak points in your riding that Macau really exposed, or and you're like, oh, I need to, I've got to work on my, you know, entrances a little bit better, or my braking a bit better, or the thing that David Jeffries and Rudder were doing because I was in the top three, I was watching them. I was in second actually for maybe six laps, and so uh, I think DJ got by me for second, and I got right. to watch them battle for many many laps and the one thing that I could not believe was how David Jeffries who's a big who was a big boy you know like yeah, he was a big guy and sure. had a lot of leverage a little bit like Hick, Hickman you know he's got that right. body longer longer legs longer arms longer limbs yeah he was leaving black marks off the corners and uh, on his Pirelli that was on Dunlops but on the English Intex which have mad grip but DJ would light the tire up on the exit of the corners with the runoff being Armco and it's like well I'm not brave enough for that <laughs> it's it's that is beyond me. So the the biggest weak link that I could say that I had was just being able to trust sliding the bike around with no runoff. I right. I, I couldn't take it to that level. Right, right. So I mean, these guys they're like weighting the front. They're putting a little more weight on the front to unload the rear a little bit, maybe on the exit to help turn the bike. I just think they had really. I think Dave David Jeffries specifically had really good throttle control, and he had okay. a lot of strength and a lot of mass to be able to sort of uh, pick the bike up and trust in his Pirellis. I talked to him about it afterwards, and uh, that's the main thing. Is and also you don't you don't. It's honestly it's like ninety something percent. Like you're not going slow you're breaking super deep you have to pass guys you have to pass guys with a little bit of margin of error because you don't want to stand them up right and have them have nowhere to go so there's a lot of mutual respect between the road racers you know sure we don't want it because we're all going to the pub afterwards and getting absolutely pissed and we're all mates <laughs> and everybody's bonding it's the end of the year it's after all of the professional racing is done we'd all go have a laugh and and then go to thailand for eight days and you know we you just don't want to uh, put yeah. a rough move on your buddy right yeah. That's very dangerous, in other words. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. So that obviously then led to sort of TT fever. And so, I believe you had something like 46 starts in yeah, your entire career. We did 46 starts at the TT over 11 fortnights, but that was 11, uh, I'm sorry, 13 fortnights, 11 years, did two classics. I had done 17 trips to Macau, and on the fourth or third when I got on the podium, I was approached by somebody with a business card that said, would you be interested in coming to the TT. And the interesting story there is they had just hired a young Paul Phillips. Paul Phillips is now the man that continues to be in charge of the TT. He's the man you have to know. He's the man with all the budget. He's the one that's done all the growth and the VIP and the, you know, the, the television packages. Paul Phillips was in his 20s at the time. I was his very first ever international acquisition. They were going to try to get the field filled in you know filled up with some extra guys from australia or from asia or from italy or something that just wasn't necessarily from the uk and when they approached me they said we'd really like to get some more international flavor at the tt would you be interested you just got on the podium you, you obviously have some pedigree and i said well, <laughs> they said what would it take and i'm like geez you know i gave them a number uh, kind of like start money and they said that's no problem and they placed me they paid for me to be on the taz Suzuki team right oh, out of the nice. gate. Okay. So they took me to the Northwest 200, and you know I didn't really get on that well. It's a mass start in the rain, thousand cc. Oh my God, it's nuts. So I didn't really, you know, I finished whatever in the top third, and then when we went to the TT, um, I did well. You know, I, I I went as fast as it would have taken to one to win the Manx in my first year by you know by a good margin, but um, 
Taz was cool to have a, you know, it was a full lorry, full semi-truck, full factory Suzuki team at the time. So I had good mechanics and I had great machinery. And that was the very first time ever. And that was in 19, no, 2006 okay. was my first TT. Right, right. And since have since done 46 starts, yes. Right. Wow. So what was your first lap at the TT like? Was it like that? Well, this is kind of a piece of cake compared to Macau. Or was it like, holy shit, this is a whole different ball game? It's much more gnarly than Macau. Macau, at least you're contained. It's whatever number of corners, you know, it's maybe 18 corners or something like that. And you know where you are. You know, if you fall, you're going to bounce off that Armco. With the TT, it's extremely fast. It's the the, the right. average speed is like you get to stretch the legs of these thousand cc leader bikes, like you never ever get to do. If you know even the longest straightaway, let's say Road America in in the states, you know you you clip sixth gear and you're back down on 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 the brakes again. And at the TT, you're like fourth gear, fifth gear, sixth gear, pinned, just holding on through like almost like through whoops and stuff. You have to just go over all these potholes and bumps and jumps and it's actually if you fall off there you could hit a telephone pole you could go into a pub you could go off a cliff and because of the average high speed i felt it was much more dangerous not only to mention there's 226 corners that you have to memorize like inch perfect in one lap each lap and you each have to lap. do six lap races which have you know pit stops and it's they're almost two hours long it's longer than a daytona 200 without again a single error you right. cannot make one mistake right. or you're really, really in trouble. Right. So now it's a two-week commitment without an error. And when you're talking about a mistake or an error, I'm talking about, you're talking about six inches offline. Uh, less. Two less. inches offline. Two inches Because offline. you could go into a curb, which is, then has a, uh, you know, like a, gull a gutter right. with a curb. And if you just graze the curb, you could get yourself into where now you can't make, you just graze it, and you won't be able to connect the next four corners, left, right, right, left, because you're off timing and you you're pinned dude you're like 160 miles an hour and yeah. if you just go one little mistake you, that'll that energy will continue that mass is going to continue right. to roll forward without you being able to do what you just were doing which is inch perfect at 160 now you're right. off in it two inches and right. that's enough i mean that shot of you know the, the famous shot of peter hickman you know going through crosby you know, 190 miles an hour, and he's drifting the back end. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, the nuts that you guys have doing that stuff. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And, and I think probably most people aren't familiar with that kind of speed. When you start talking these big numbers, the, the bike reacts differently. Things change. With, with every 10 miles an hour over about 130, the bike is reacting differently, and it takes a lot more strength just to turn it. Were you, were you finding that it was getting really physical at those kind of speeds? Well, you absolutely nailed it at about 130. That is when everything starts to change. The gyroscopic forces on your wheels go over a threshold of now you have to countersteer a lot of with a lot of force to get the bike to change direction. The other thing that a lot of people might not realize is the arrow anything over 138 miles an hour, the, the arrow starts to compress and it starts to flap your leathers and it starts to make the bike do strange things. And we're literally skating the front wheel off the ground at the TT for a third of the lap and you're getting airborne at 150 a few times and also slower a few times. Right. But when you're going high speed and you get airborne, if there's a crosswind or even a headwind or a tailwind, all that affects every, again, trying to be within two inches perfect or less, 
the higher speed you go, the bike, even the chain is changing direction. You know, when you're going down Solby Strait at 199 miles an hour, you can hear the chain over the wind because it is spinning so fast, it's not normal. Like, you're like, oh, I go 125 on the street all the time. Well, at a 200 miles an hour, that chain is going through the front sprocket, then the rear sprocket, and the front sprocket, and it's going, <laughs> and you're like, dude, don't take my foot off. Please don't break. You know, like, I don't want one link to fail. And these are the kinds of things that you realize with that much energy at that kind of speed. Anything can go wrong. And if anything does go wrong, including a tank slapper, which I did have one crash at the TT, very similar situation. Right. Very famous crash. Tank slapper off the, the, the top of Quarter Bridge, at, you know, after Agos Leap, maybe 95, 90 mile an hour. And it, the bike just went absolutely sideways in the air. And I landed on top of the bike, on the side of the bike and slid right into a telephone pole, Holy which shit. I just slid off the bike. The bike hit the pole that I knew we were going to hit. Oh, and shit. I missed it by two foot, three foot. The bike exploded into four pieces over my head, literally spinning like in the air. And I, right before I hit the pole, or the bike hit the pole, I thought I was going to hit the pole. I was like, okay, that's it. You're dead. You're dead. You right. finally did it. You, cool. This is the moment. Pay attention. You're going to die. This is the only time you're going to die. So let's try to stay awake as long as you can and just experience it. Experience and the I rest fucking of my missed life. It. I missed the pole. I mean, it was... <sighs> Life-changing. I, I literally wow. thought, okay, well, that's it. There, here it comes. Right? Die. Uh, whoa, wow. I missed it? You're kidding me. How yeah. did I miss that pole? Yeah. Just barely. So you must have been maybe turning slightly as you were sliding? I just And it just somehow... On. The bike went straight into the pole. I was just on the same bike. I just happened to fall a degree off the side. And right. I just missed the pole. And the bike hit the pole. And I skidded all the way down. I ended up all the way down in Quarter Bridge, which is, you know, freaking 40 yards or whatever. The bike ended up all the way down the hill in four pieces. I'm right. not kidding. The front wheel and the forks were one piece. The engine was another piece. The rear wheel had completely broken off the swing arm, and it was somewhere else. And it was just roadkill. And I'm like, <laughs> that would have been hang hamburger for me. You know, like, so, yeah, it was very, very were, were you injured at all, or were you able to just stand up and go, holy shit, I'm still here? <sighs> I stood up. I had a tiny scratch on my thumb. And I started to make sure that the riders right behind me were going around the oil because I left this huge oil streak. And wow. so I literally started just going, you know, go, go a little wider, wider here. You know, there's oil. Right. But I couldn't believe it. Wow. So then I get to the side of the corner of the corner marshals and the corner marshal says, man, you're a lucky boy. You know that at the Manx just a few months ago, a young man came off at the exact same place and hit that pole and died. Right. Like a few months ago. Right. <sighs> Yeah, there's got to be a certain amount of survivor guilt with that, I should think. You're like, why me? How did that... I mean, somebody somewhere was looking down on you and going, you know, it's not your time, Mark. It almost made me angry. Really? To be completely honest. Because, like, why does everyone else get to die doing this fucking crazy race, and I come off in the worst way, literally hit something that could have killed me, and I miss it by a foot? You know, like, what the hell? What is it going to take for right. me to finally do too much? Right. And I didn't. And so I was on the, I was, had to go to a wedding in, in the south of France or something the, the, the very next day. And it took me until the very next day, all the taxis, all the ferries getting onto the Eurostar to go under the water between the UK and Paris. And it finally just overwhelmed me and I broke down and started bawling my eyes out. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, just that once the adrenaline wears off and you're, you're like, whoa. Because you get back to the real world and then you look back and go, you're in a different place mentally. You're a different person when you've got your head down. You know you have to 
look at it straight, both barrels, do it as absolutely as good as you can, which means not letting off the throttle, but actually staying on the throttle, staying, you know, paying attention, trying to execute two weeks worth of this in, in crazy, amazing, beautiful racetrack. But you don't do it halfway. Right. But once you settle down and like you said, the adrenaline starts coming down, you're like, okay, I almost killed myself. Right. And now I'm back to me. I'm back to the person I have to social, be a social butterfly, if you will, with that ego. And you realize that that guy, the other Mark Miller, nearly took this Mark Miller out. And <laughs> right. it's just, it's very odd. And it's very right. cool. Like, I, I just love having some kind of a project like that, though, where you have a team of guys and we're all gung-ho and everybody's got their expertise and everyone's very good at what they do and everyone's checking the bolts six different times before you go out. And it's like this team... Uh, you're on a quest, you know? Right. So I really enjoy that. Right. And I'm the last guy that gets to play. You know, they're like, right. they send me off and go, good luck. We've done all our work now. It's my job. I love that. It's like they right. sent me in, you know, the, team, the coach sent me in. And I get to do my part. And I fucked it up. You know, that was my, my bad. I actually hit it too hard. I tried to, a little bit too much right there. Right. So that's what, what caused it? It wasn't aerodynamics? No. I mean, if you were in midair, I mean, what causes the bike to suddenly go sideways because in midair? Because I nailed the throttle. So you, you, you go through Aggo's Leap, you're like Bray Hill, up Aggo's Leap, little There's wheelie, second wheelie. Big G out under Aggo's Leap. Totally. Yeah. Boom. You know, yeah. you hit the bottom of everything. It's, it's actually a little bit disconcerting because there have been drain plugs knocked off and wow. created fatalities. Like oh, William Dunlop, God. for example, I heard. That was at a different track, but he did the same kind of thing. Went wow. over a jump or something, and he hit the bottom of his engine. And it's happened wow. at, uh, what's that, at the bottom of Barragero? Barragero? That that happened to, I think, Hillier. He went in there a little bit. Hot. Oh, right. Yeah. And, like, the next six guys had to go through fucking oil wow. with a tree as a runoff, which a German did crash there once, and he lost all his teeth. He survived, but he smashed his face to bits. Anyway, wow. it's it's like going to war. Right. But if you like riding motorcycles, there is no cooler circuit in the world for 226 corners with that high speed and every kind of corner in one lap that you'll ever know in a career. Right. You go to Laguna Seca and Road Atlanta and all these are right. maybe in England or whatever. In one lap of the TT, you use all the tools in your arsenal for different sections and different right. types of slow corners, fast corners, banked, un, you know, cambered, etc. What, what is the biggest challenge of the TT? I mean, the biggest personal challenge. Is it trying to sort of quell your fears? Is it trying to stay focused? Is it the physical strength and fitness needed? I mean, it, there's, there's, there's got to be so many different challenges that for two hours you're racing and, like you say, a couple of hundred miles and all the 1,200 corners and what have you. How do you stay focused? How do you quell your fears how do you not get distracted all those different things mentally the one thing that that you learn very very quickly is it's a long burn you have two full weeks i'm riding okay. five different motorcycles in seven different classes and you never ever want to have peaks and valleys emotionally okay. you just you don't want red bull you don't need acdc in your helmet before you go down bray hill for the first lap because you know, as soon as you set off on that course, you're going to be in the moment. You don't need any kind of hype. You don't need anything. You don't need to do meditation. You just need to shut the F up and get on the bike without any kind of arguments or, or elation or anticipation. You know, you just right. need to slow burn. And I can tell you, every single time, now I did this 13 two weeks, you know, 13 fortnights. 
And every single time you get to the end and you know that you are done with that Fortnite, whether you ran out of fuel on the last lap or you finished the race perfectly or your bike broke, whatever it is, that moment you know you survived it again, that is a huge exhale. Because you can stop being such a Zen master and just go, we survived it. We survived We're done. You know, and, wow. and not everybody did that right. year. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's, sure. you, you don't want to get also be too happy because in the pub that night, you don't want to be laughing like an idiot and getting right. all pissed and, and joking around when there has been four fatalities that week. Right. And there, you know all of them. So you just need to be kind of tempered. The TT is literally like going to war and you need to respect every minute you're on the island to the minute you leave. Right. And then never forget, you know, the guys that you lost and not try to, you know, be too cavalier about any of it. Interesting. Very interesting. So what was the reaction when you got back to the paddock after the big crash? Were huh. they just sort of all like wide-eyed with horror or nope. like just thank God you survived, mate? Well, the thing about being a crew member at the TT is you, you set your guys off and you don't see them in 20, for another 18 minutes. So they don't know what the hell happened. And no one will tell them because right. there is such a secrecy. They don't, if there's a massive accident or a fatality or something serious, it takes forever for the crew to learn what the heck happened and until another rider comes in and goes, hey, man, by the way, he's okay. I saw him. He was standing, right. on, he was standing there. The bike's fucked, but right. he's okay. I just want right. to let, okay, bye. See you later. Right. See you at the pub. But a lot of times there's a big hesitation. So when I came back without the bike, they knew I'd gone missing. And right. they didn't quite know what happened, but I think they got somebody had said, hey, he's, I think he's okay. So when okay. I showed back up, they were kind of like grinning. They're like, hey, what'd you do? All right. Okay. like, yeah. Listen, guys, I don't want to say this more than once. I'm, I'm a little bit spooked. I'm freaked out right now. Right. Everybody gathered around. And so I got all my mates, all my mechanics, everybody said, I just, I just want to let you know. I hit a telephone pole. <laughs> and I just missed it. And the bike hit it. And I'm in a weird way right now, but just be kind. You know, like be gentle <laughs> right. with me. Not really. But I just <laughs> right. wanted to let them know that right. this was a serious off. And uh, so sorry about the bike, but you'll, you know, it's coming back in the back of the truck right now. And this was the fun part. They pulled it beep, 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 you know, into the area where the box van was, the crash truck. Right. And they all gathered around to get, you know, to get their bike, right? I don't own the <laughs> right. bike. They own the bike. They opened up the back of the box van, like the U-Haul. <laughs> and dude, we have it on video because somebody was smart enough just to grab their phone or something and record it. And everybody's faces at that moment realized what it was I was so on about. Like, well, what's he on about? Like, why is he being so serious about it all? What's the big deal? All their faces just dropped and their mouths opened and they literally were like, oh, shit. Yeah. Mate, I'm right. so happy you're okay. Right. Because they were pulling, they were dragging. I mean, some of the stuff was still attached with brake lines, but it was, an, it was roadkill. It was like wow. intestines and like Ugh. broken legs and, you know, magnesium wheels were just shattered. And anyway, there, so a lot of hugs at that point. And, uh, All right. I'll bet. And no judgment. <laughs> no, they couldn't care. Matter of fact, the owner of the bike said, dude, I don't care one bit about the bike. We can get another bike. I'm so glad you're okay, mate. I'm so glad. And cause if you did get killed riding one of their team bikes, they got to live with it for 20 years. Like right. they're not going to be too happy about the fact of the bike, the bike can be replaced, you know, for big sure. deal. It's what is it? 40 grand, 60 grand. I don't know what, but you can't, you'd, you'd be sad if you lost one of your riders. Yeah. Yeah. A for lot. Sure. You know, I mean, seriously sad. Wow. Cause they're, the, they're giving you the drug, you know, right. the, you're the, you're the, the addict <laughs> yeah. and they're the one keep pushing you with the, the, the drug, you know? Right. Right. But from the low of that, 
mm. to the high of actually winning a race at the TT, mm -hmm. uh, as documented by Mark Neal in, in one of his documentaries, mm. that must have been a whole different tale. Totally different tale because one, I kind of cheated with the first place because it was on an electric bike and, you know, Moto Sizz, Michael Sizz from Oregon made in this contraption, this invention out of his own mind and it was insanely cool and it worked really, yeah, really well. Beautiful machine. All I had to do is not mess up and just do the lap and finish the lap and we would, should win. First year we didn't, it broke because they always break. But this time, after like nine different tries, which we never finished a lap because we're always pushing to try to get the energy early, do, 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 to climb the hill at the end, run out of you know juice. When I won, it was a, a massive elation because we had not only won, but we had finished the lap as we should have. And I was the one that didn't burn up the, the energy on reserves, the reserves. Because right. I'm following all these as kind of like my pilot's license. I'm watching all these gauges. And I was like, oh, mile marker 19, I'm at this much energy and I'm supposed to be here and I got a target. I got to slow down a little bit here. or I, Oh, I got a little in, in the bank. I can go up the hill a little bit quicker and then regen on the way down. Right. So I'm flying this thing live. Right. And when I finished the, you know, cross finish line and we won, it was like awesome. I didn't screw it up. I did my job. They didn't screw it up. They did their job. And we were really happy. And I got a first place trophy to this day in my living room, which I'm very proud of because it's the big one. It's the big first place trophy <laughs> right. that not everybody gets, you know? Not everybody gets. That's very cool. That's very cool. And a totally different type of riding because not only are you having to manage all the usual TT stuff and the high speeds and the everything else is, you're actually having to manage the energy of the bike or yeah. the, the, the fuel that's left for one of a, a better expression. But yeah, the thing was as heavy as a gold wing. Very distracting, I should think. The thing is you, you stay in a total tuck the entire lap. You basically right. never get out of a tuck because right. for the brakes or whatever. You want to be as aerodynamic for the whole thing and you want to never slow down. Because right. you're losing that momentum you just you know you've had for the last couple of miles, so it's and the thing weighs as much as a Goldwing, so it was over 600 pounds, solid lead, like a like it had three times more battery than a Prius or something, right. you know, because it's a racing machine. Yeah, yeah and they yeah. try to get the very most stuffed into this carbon fiber chassis that is a proprietary one-off, which I'm hoping won't and break down Bray Hill and just, you know, cause it's not Honda, you know I mean? Like even right. Megan, it's not Kawasaki. It's, it's actually this dude that's really smart and he's got computers and he designed all these forces and all this flex. And anyway, it was a carbon fiber chassis he built. It never failed, thank God. And I had to trust him just so I trust right. you. I have to, I'm, I have right. committed to do this. I trust you, Michael. And that he never let me down. So yeah, it was weird though. I had to stay in a tuck, the bike was heavy and you couldn't lose any momentum and you couldn't waste energy and you had to survive and go across the finish line with zero left. So it was fun. Wow. It was, like, it was really cool. Like a lot of people don't realize how cool it is. And also there's no bloody noise, just a little <laughs> bit of wind. And you hear the tire, like the tires are going boom, 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 through your handlebars, but there's no vibration from the engine. It was like flying on the back of a seagull, literally, like really low, like two foot off the deck. That's how <laughs> it's neat. Yeah. Wow. What a cool experience. So yeah, so so then finally you get to you get to move on because now you're a TT commentator. Yeah, so I, I finished a few years back and I was like, that's great. You know, I need to walk away from this. I need to put the gun down on the table because I've been doing the roulette. You know, like, yeah. like spinning it, click, spinning right. it, click. Yeah, I listen. If I walk away now, it's on me. You know what I mean? All right. Because trust me, I still want to be doing it. I, I could still be doing it. Right. For I sure. I have access and I still feel like I'm physically fit enough. But right. I decided let's go do something else. Let's go try a different project. And a few years passed. I didn't. I paid attention a bit, 
But then I got approached by Paul Phillips again, the same guy that got me started, whatever, in 2005, 2006. said, hey, mate, we know we got this whole new streaming service. Um, we're going to show full live coverage from beginning to end. We're going to have 28 cameras around the track, two helicopters. We're wow. investing a, a bank of money, and we would really like to have your international, again, have the token American. Right come in and fill you know they got the fastest australian they got in uh, cameron donald they got the fastest girl in jenny tinsmith they got horse sager from germany they got my dumb ass and it's like well mate if it's if you think i could be of any help of course i will do anything for you you know that you you brought so much into my life if i can be helpful to the tt fine even if i suck at it that's fine too i never wanted to be a commentator i don't normally like commentators i just turn the tv you know the sound off but Anyway, so I had to go at it this year, and I did 11 days and four hours a day live, and I don't know, I got some good feedback, so I don't know. Hopefully it was okay. <laughs> That's awesome. So you've had a 20-year career as a professional road racer. What, what's next for Mark Thriller Miller? Um, well, it's not something I like to talk about. I'd rather just do it. Okay. But I can tell you that, you know, we've got some, some irons in the fire. What I've always wanted to do since I was a little kid is race something until I was a bit older and lost the, the youth and then tell stories through film. So I would really love okay. to tell a great story right. through films. I've made a bunch of little films, I mean like 25, and okay. I love filmmaking. And that's what I'm maneuvering to do now is simply put out some quality shite that we could all love that maybe could have some bikes in it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I remember uh, several, many, many years ago, um, you, uh, you did a thing called Superbike Life, mm. um, which sadly ended up going nowhere because of all the various copyright problems and, and trademarks and people getting weird. It's a, it's a shame that wasn't made, but even just the, the few trailers and things you put out mm. uh, were fascinating. I thought, oh, oh this is going to be great. Well, we all, we, we all want to see the inside story. <laughs> we want to see, everyone wants to sort of see behind the curtain, mm. you know, w with these various... The Superbike Life thing is made it's fun to watch and it's actually really fun because it's dated now it's it's whenever it was i shot in what 08 right riding for arion honda factory sister team you know with josh hayes is just starting out and nikki hayden was my teammate and he was about to go to motor gps winning super bikes all the bostroms and all the characters like miguel de hamel you got all of it right i could release it as a home video and right. with no monetization of it and i'm considering doing that but I'm just waiting, waiting. I don't want to do anything too early because we've got other things we're trying to do, and I wouldn't want to complicate it by saying, well, you may not be making any money off of it this way, but now, of course, you're, you could be telling a, selling a T-shirt or something. Like it's, I don't want to open that can of worms. I want to stay focused. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe it'll end up where, where you don't personally profit from it, but maybe you know the money goes. You ask for donations to a charity. Or I something. never wanted to make money off of it. it I right. just wanted to capture. I felt like I had such a lucky break to be in this world, right? In a factory semi, Honda yeah. semi truck, and I'm like, somebody's got to capture this, man. And I, and so <laughs> I was a massive yeah. fan of camcorders at the time. They were just. It was just the beginning of digital and just the beginning yeah. of standard def to HD. And anyway, so I grabbed a very expensive magnesium camera. Right. And uh, started to record every, including the training, all the dirt track stuff with Ken Maley's ranch and Kenny Roberts ranch, and oh wow, you know, traveling about and yeah. Oh, that oh. you've got to figure out a way to get that to people. Yeah. We would, I mean, just 
just the story behind all of that stuff. Like I say, seeing behind the curtain. Well, I mean, since you since you mentioned, I've just got to, as a quick aside, you were Nikki Hayden's teammate. Mm. Just uh, for those who who knew and loved Nikki Hayden, what what was that like? So the first time I met Nikki, he was 15. He wasn't old enough yet to enter the uh, the 600 Supersport Pro Series, but he was in Las Vegas anyway because it was like the Saturday. He turned 16 on the Sunday. Right. And this kid, this short, little, scrawny, 15-year-old kid about to turn 16. With braces on his teeth, I remember. Dude, he's a yeah. little twerp, you know? He's amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he comes up. So literally, my mother was in town for the reason. My sister, or my girlfriend, whatever. We all just jumped into our little minivan that I had used to take all the bikes in. And this stranger comes up to me out of the blue and goes... Hey man, like, hey Mark, uh, Mark Miller, hey, can can I? What are you? Where are you going? I said, oh, we're just gonna go to the the casino for dinner, you know. He's like, all right. You think maybe I could get a ride with you? <laughs> and I just, you know, I got nowhere to go, and uh, I, I just have some time to kill. I'm like, heck yeah, kid! Like, get <laughs> get in the back of the van. Awesome. So we actually all went out and went to dinner, and I never right. knew who this kid was until the very next day when he got like fourth place in 600 Super Sport and smoked everybody but like. Two. <laughs> right. Out of the gate, like first ever. Right. And then I think that was at Las Vegas. And uh, right. you know, the rest is history. He went to like um hypercycle after that, which I rode for as well. Yep. And after that he got an Arion Honda gig and then he went to Factory Honda. Right. And then he got the superbike wins and, and of course, American uh, Honda picked him up. Oh six world champion. And he also he went to fucking Moto G P dude. Moto G P two thousand six. Crazy. It yeah, was so crazy. fun to watch yeah. to see that trajectory. Yeah, I remember talking to him once, and I was like, you know, Nicky, you know, you're so fast. And he's like, he kind of gives me this strange look, and he goes, well, I like to slide the bike. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my Kentucky accent sucks, but you get the picture. Yeah, yeah. I like to slide the bike. I'm thinking, no shit. <laughs> we shared, like, we were on the podium together in Formula Extreme or 750 Super Sport Bunch. We were probably on the podium together maybe nine or ten times. And in the post-race press conferences, you know, I was like, dork you know idiot me saying stuff like oh what about this what's it gonna take to beat Nicky Nicky or whatever I'm like dude I just gotta find some you know some some er something that he's not the greatest at and exploit it and I'm gonna try to improve on what I need to improve on you know and, and Nicky's basically just sitting there going like what is he on about like what is Miller why does he always have to talk and then <laughs> because he doesn't know anything like book smart Nicky Hayden does not know book smart per se like like actual technical physics stuff i had to go to bloody physics one two three algebra and my flight stuff and you know pretend to be maybe slightly educated but that kid knows what the hell he's talking about and he's an onboard professor better than anyone else in the world because he's doing all this mathematics all this physics okay. on the bike and i've oh, heard nice. him talk to his mechanics about setup it's like oh yeah Jack, you know how many clicks did you go there three three clicks more compression and all right, well, let's let's go back because it, yeah, no, I squat a little bit and it was sliding. And he, dude, he knew absolutely what the bike was doing, right? Which is all math and how to change it. And he knew exactly that world, right? You know, you might not know how to read a freaking physics book. Who cares? You know, right. but Who he cares? was so smart and so good at that. Wow, wow. So at some point in your career, you decided to give a shot at uh, endurance racing. Mm. Yeah. That must have been interesting. Yeah, you did the bold door. Yeah, you did the bold door one year. Yep, uh, Pinskoffer uh, is a German factory back team. We invited me to go do a twenty-four hour, a couple times or something, and um, just a couple rounds. Honestly, that was really fun because those guys are basically sprint racing for twenty-four hours. I didn't realize how <laughs> right. fast yeah. they would be going, and the bikes are top shelf. You know, they're full kitted, 
with right. all the quick change and all that. And it's, that was a team effort beyond belief. 24-hour race. You right. know, they had a chef and two masseuses and all the nutritionists and hydration person. And, I mean, it was, it was nuts. You know, you have multiple <laughs> riders, so you have a little squirt and a big tall guy, and everyone has to kind of have an average on the settings. And right. You just don't want to be the guy that messes it all up. And, actually, I did mess it up once. I, I lost the front once. Uh, I had four hours on the front tire and <laughs> one lap to go. Oh. Same as everything. Grabbed, the, you know, just rolled on the throttle and the thing tucked. And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, like, come on. I was coming in. Like, I was literally coming in, and I knew the tire had four hours. It wasn't supposed to have four hours. They, had, we, they didn't change it the second time. Anyway, uh, the punchline is it was my bike was beautiful. BMW 1000 was sliding to the gravel, and I'm sliding towards the gravel, and I'm looking at it, and I go, please don't flip. Just don't flip. And it hit the gravel, and it cartwheeled end over, end over, end over, end over. End. Like, No! Come on, man. There's 26 guys in the in the garage that are now going to be grumpy at me because I'm that guy that just screwed up the whole flargan thing. Uh, but, yeah, that's my endurance story. Right. But did you finish an endurance race? I'm sure we did somewhere. I mean, we did a bunch of also at Willow Springs back in the day. Oh, with sure. The Cycle World sure, versus... Yeah. Da, 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 and I was with Attack, and I think we won. Did we win all of those, or did we break? I don't remember. But Right. Yeah. Lots that's got to be got to be an interesting thing. Yeah, so so then at some point you decided to take, get your pilot's license. Well, we did that in college. That was the first. So check it out. So oh, I this went, is all part of the I want to be a pilot. Dude, I, I went to Northern Arizona. Flight. I right. got my grades up in, in one year at Long Beach City College because I left right. off in high school. I had no grades. Mm-hmm. Went to one year at Un- City University, which is, of course, a fraction of the cost, and got, got my core classes, got my grades up, got accepted into this aviation university. I was going to be a fighter pilot. I went all the way up there, spent four more years there, $100,000. I get to the very end, and the colonel says, come on in here, Mr. Miller. Sits me down and says, right, you're sixth in your class like out of 200. You're going right. to get jets. He didn't say that, but that's what I was stoked about. Right. I would have gotten fighters. You know, I wanted right. F-15s or F-16s, which my best friend got, by the way, and I'm still friends with him, and he did 20 years. All right, so I'm jealous. Right. He's jealous of me. I'm jealous of him. <laughs> so he says, hey, listen, uh, looking over your, your background check, because they were just about to give me a background check, top secret clearance. You know, I'm going to be a, an right. officer in the Air Force. Did all the work, finally got to the end. He says, listen, we got a problem. I said, what? He <laughs> says, you have 11 speeding tickets at the time, at the moment, <laughs> since you were 16. Right. I can only waive 10. Oh. And I kicked it up to the higher-ups back at corporate headquarters, and they won't waive it either. You don't follow the rules. We can't trust you. We don't want to invest millions of dollars and give you this crazy jet that you can, and then you're going to not follow the rules and go fart around on it and do whatever you want because oh. Mark's special. You're out. Oh. No. Oh, Literally, no. the last five minutes of my entire... This is Maverick requesting a flyby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can just see it. I can see it. Yep. <laughs> this yep. is Thriller requesting a flyby. No, but the that cool negative thing, Ghost Rider, the pattern cool is full. <laughs> One, we got to go racing, which is what I always wanted to do. And two, I never did have to kill anybody, which is oh, a reality... Is yeah. That, you know, listen, I would have if I, you know, to help our guys, like the, right. the boys on the ground or whatever needs to be happening for the greater good. Right. But I didn't have to, and all of my college friends did. Right. And it's just something that I recognize that I just didn't right. have to. That's and a, I got to go racing. That's a bridge you did not have to cross. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's absolutely amazing. But funnily enough, 
I have lost probably 20 friends on the road racing stuff and a couple yeah. in the short circuits. Sure. So in, there's a lot of parallels between professional motorcycle racing, especially on the roads, yeah. and being in the military. Yeah. You're losing friends. You're getting hurt yourself. You could die all the time. So, you know, it kind of we ended up doing our own version of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough when you, when you lose friends. And obviously, we've all lost, you know, lost friends. And I have lost many. The interesting thing that I always say, and this may not be applicable to you, but I always say, for as many people as I've lost to motorcycles, I've actually lost more to weirdo illnesses and early sicknesses. Michael Sears is a classic example. Mm. Throat cancer at 52, out of the middle never of Never smoked, nowhere. never drank. Never smoked, never drank. Passed away at 52, throat cancer. And, you know, and he was a racer and he was a good. RS250. He was good. Challenge Cup winner. Yeah. I mean, and it all seems so unfair. And I'm like, well, as much as I hate motorcycles for, for what they can take from us, at the end of the day, I think you have to just choose your own path and, and do your own thing. And don't be so afraid of dying that you forget how to live. Um, it, uh, that's cliched, but... I'm like, you know, if I'd spent my whole life sitting around on a couch, I'd probably have died of some weirdo cancer or uh, some heart disease or something. So, you know what? It is what it is. I could just add, and absolutely, you're right. Uh, one of the things I kept being drawn back to, to the willing to take the risk, is the incapable, you're incapable of bullshit when you're on these bikes and you have that kind of uh, right. lack of uh, room for error. And you get, you have such control over your immediate destiny because you know you could get the damn throat cancer. Right. But to be able to say, I have control over my destiny at this exact moment. If I do a brain fart, if I just say, I don't care for like a half a second or let's say two seconds, you're done. You know what right. I mean? But that's very cool because I think we're also wishing we could have that kind of uh, control over our environment. And it's only there that I feel like I have 100... Like yesterday, mate, we were riding the last four days around Tuscany. Right. Like, you know, great. You and I were also... Every time we'd bolt ahead, you and I were the ones, you know? And it's just that flow, that that ballet. Well, I do have a sort of uncontrolled hooligan mode, unfortunately. <laughs> I try to control it. It's never really worked. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Hey, Mark, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and, and sharing all your experiences. Oh, my pleasure.